ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So we're now on the chapter Bab La Yudbahu Lillahi Bimakanin Yudbahu Fihi Lighirillah. The chapter that the slaughtering for the sake of Allah should not be done in a place where slaughtering for other than the sake of Allah is also done. Slaughtering for the sake of Allah. Slaughtering for the sake of Allah. But in a place where mushrikeen also slaughter their slaughterings for other than the sake of Allah, then you should not do your slaughtering in that same place. Your slaughtering for the sake of Allah should not be done in the same place where the mushrikeen slaughter for other than the sake of Allah. So here, the issue is not about slaughtering for other than the sake of Allah. The previous chapter spoke about that. In this chapter, it is talking about slaughtering for the sake of Allah, but it is now talking about the place where you do it. If the place where you do it is a place that the mushrikeen they use for their shirk, for their slaughtering to others besides Allah, then that is the issue that is going to be discussed in this particular chapter. So Ash-Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, لِأَنَّ الذَّبْحَ فِي هَذَا الْمَكَانِ وَإِنْ كَانَ لِلَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلْ فَإِنَّهُ وَسِيلَةٌ إِلَى الشِّرْكِ Slaughtering in this place, even if it is done for the sake of Allah, then it can be a means of leading on to shirk. Because you're now performing this worship in a place, where shirk is also performed. So that could lead on to some shirk occurring, or it could open up the door to some shirk occurring. Or others who are on looking, they are looking at you doing this worship, and you're doing it in a place where shirk occurs, it could cause confusion. So there are various reasons why this act of performing that uh, slaughtering of an animal in a place where slaughtering for other than Allah occurs would not be acceptable or it would not be something suitable to do. Similarly, slaughtering an animal in that particular place would be magnifying the status of that place. The mushrikeen obviously take that particular place as something important. That's why they go and they slaughter their animals there. So if you go and use that same place, it's as if you would be magnifying the importance of that particular place. You would be increasing the status of that place also by using it as well. And there are other examples of this. For example, the Prophet ﷺ forbade us from praying facing the direction of the graves, forbade us from praying towards the graves. Why is that? Because it can lead to shirk. 
a person praying towards the graves, particularly if other individuals they see you, and they are upon an incorrect aqidah or a lack of understanding, and they see you praying towards the graves, then they will be misguided by this action of yours. They will be confused by this action of yours. You are opening up a door to possible shirk occurring thereafter, even from the ones who do it. They may begin by praying in that direction towards the graves and things could lead on to other affairs. So the Prophet ﷺ forbade us from praying towards the graveyards as an example. Similarly, praying at the time of sunrise, at the actual time of sunrise and the actual time of sunset, then during those times we are forbidden to pray. It is not correct to pray at those times. Why? Because the devil worshippers used to pray at that time. The worshippers of fire, the fire worshippers, they used to pray at that time. At the time of the sun rising and at the time of the sun setting. So we pray before sunrise and then after sunset. Not during sunrise and during sunset. In order that we do not imitate those people who were... Uh, worshipping at those times due to their beliefs that they were upon the misguided beliefs. Here the first narration that is mentioned is the ayah in the Quran La taqum fihi abada Do not stand in there ever. This ayah is talking about Masjid al-Darar. This is now the story of some of the munafiqeen. Because what happened was, when the Prophet ﷺ, he left Mecca, because the non-Muslims in Mecca, they were pressurizing the believers, and they were harming the believers, and they were doing evil things towards the Muslims. So then Allah allowed and gave the command for the Prophet, Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to leave Mecca and to go to Medina. So the Muslims at that time, they left their homes, they left their families, they left their money, they left all types of things behind in Mecca and they followed the command of Allah and they moved approximately what is 300 miles or thereabouts to Mecca. After that, when they arrived uh, to Medina, sorry, and when they arrived in Medina, there was an individual there by the name of Abu Amir al-Fasiq. And this particular individual was himself well known in Medina before the arrival of the Prophet Muhammad He was well known and he was a religious individual, not upon Islam, the other religions. And the people used to come to him and they used to respect him. But he was upon shirk. When the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina with the Muslims, then the people of Medina accepted Islam. And they all started going to the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. So this individual, Abu Amir al-Fasiq, he became envious and jealous of this affair. And he was angered by this, that he had lost his status in Medina. And now the Muslims and the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ had taken that status, what he believed was his rightful and deserving status. So when he went to some of the other lands, and he was Christian, 
when he went to some of the other lands, he gathered some of the other Christians and some of the other uh, uh, generally disbelievers, mushrikeen, the polytheists, and the munafiqeen. He made a plan with them. And their plan was, all of these uh, non-Muslims at that time, the munafiqeen, who were the munafiqeen particularly, those people who were pretending to be Muslims, and in reality they were not Muslims. They were the ones who used to pretend to be Muslims, and they used to pray in the mosques, and they used to go with the Muslims, but they weren't really Muslims. They were the munafiqeen at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. They all made a plan. And their plan was that they would build a mosque. They would build a mosque, and in this particular mosque, they would get together, it would be like a gathering place for them, to come together, to get together, and to make their plans against the Muslims. Why did they decide to build a mosque to do that? Because there would be no suspicion. If they built some other type of center, and they were getting together all the time, people would become suspicious. Why do these lot always get together in the center? They are there till late. What are they talking about? What are they doing? People would become suspicious. But if they built a mosque, then nobody would become suspicious. Because every time they get together in the mosque, everybody would just think they've gone to pray. Or they've gone to do some studying, or to read the Qur'an, or to do some religious uh, uh, gathering. So nobody would be suspicious. They would say it's a place of worship, it's a mosque. They're getting together to worship. So nobody would be suspicious. And they could get together as often as they wanted, and come together and sit there and plan and plot and do whatever proposals they wanted to put forward for attacking or going against the Prophet Muhammad So that was their plan, to build a mosque. And in reality, it wasn't actually a mosque. They were disbelievers. They weren't even Muslims. But they were going to build this mosque uh, as a pretense, so that they could get together in it and pretend that they are worshipping. And really, really, they would be making their plans against the Muslims. So they built this mosque. Then, to make it even more convincing... They asked the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. They asked the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam to come and to pray in that masjid. They made their excuses initially. They made their excuses as to why they needed this extra new mosque because they built it right next to Masjid Quba, very close to Masjid Quba, and they made excuses. They said no, but Masjid Quba is a bit further out, and sometimes it's cold at night. And sometimes there's a bit of rain, etc. And some of us are weak in this area, elderly in age. We need another one a bit closer. So they built this other masjid or this pretend masjid. Because obviously they couldn't build a church or some other center. Because that would be too obvious. So they built this masjid or this pretend masjid near to Masjid Quba. And then to uh, make sure that there would be no suspicion at all, they asked the Prophet wasallam to come and pray in that masjid. Because that way, if the Prophet ﷺ went and prayed in that mosque as well, prayed a prayer or two prayers in that masjid, if later on anybody did get slightly suspicious, that they're always getting together and these regular gatherings they have in there, if somebody did become suspicious, they could just turn around and say, you have no reason to worry, you have nothing to worry about. Even the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ has prayed with us in this masjid. 
So they would be able to use that as a further argument to dispel, to get rid of any suspicions. So they sent this request to the Prophet ﷺ to come and to pray in the masjid. At that time, the Prophet ﷺ was not actually in the area. He had gone to Tabuk, to the battle of Tabuk at that time. So when the message came to him, he replied to them with a message saying to them, that we are currently out on the journey to the battle of Tabuk, but inshallah, when we come back, will pray in that mosque, that he will come and pray in this mosque of theirs. Because obviously at this stage, the Prophet ﷺ didn't know that this masjid had been built by these uh, non-Muslims and they were pretending it was a mosque. He didn't know that. So he said to them, okay, you've built the new masjid, we'll, I'll come and pray in it when we come back from the battle of Tabuk. So, when they were coming back, eventually, uh, a little time later, when the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ was coming back from the battle of Tabuk, on the way back, when he had almost arrived, he was practically back, maybe a day or two days or three days away from arriving in Medina. The revelation came to him. The revelation, this ayah of the Qur'an, it was revealed. لَا تَقُمْ فِيهِ أَبَدًا Never go and pray in that place. Never stand in that place for prayer. Never go into that masjid. The revelation came, clarifying and explaining the reality of what was going on. That those people were munafiqeen, they were the hypocrites. The ones who were pretending to be Muslims and they were not. And so when that revelation came to the Prophet ﷺ, he realized what was going on. That this was only a pretense. It was only a pretense from these people that this is a masjid. And in reality, it was going to be their base where they were going to make their plans against the Muslims. So the Prophet ﷺ, it's mentioned in the history, in the seerah, that he sent some of the companions in advance. They were now in their party, in their group, two or three days away from Medina. He sent some of the companions to go on ahead. And so they went on ahead. And they went to this pretense masjid, this pretend masjid that the munafiqeen had built. They went there and they destroyed it. They took it down. They destroyed it because it was not a masjid, it was not a mosque in reality. It had been built by those disbelievers as a pretense. So the companions, they went and they destroyed that place. And they burnt it down. In the books of history, it is mentioned that the people who lived in the area of Quba close by to this so-called masjid that the munafiqeen had built, those Muslims who were living in that area used the site of this masjid, they used that site as a rubbish dump afterwards. They would go and tip their rubbish on that site, on that place where those disbelievers had tried to build this pretend masjid, but it had been destroyed once they found out, once the Muslims found out what was going on. The point of all of this is what? The point of all of this is that the munafiqeen, the hypocrites had built that masjid. It looked like a masjid. However, it was impermissible to go and pray there. The revelation came down telling the Prophet ﷺ, do not go and pray in that place. Because the people who had built it had not built it with sincere intention. That place had not been built upon sincerity to Allah. It was a place that was built 
in opposition to Allah and His Messenger. So the purposes and the objectives of that location, they were not suitable for worship. They were not suitable for a person to go and pray in that masjid for the sake of Allah, when that masjid in of its core, its essence had been built to oppose Allah and the Messenger. So that was not a correct and suitable place to go and do the worship in. Because the actual intent of that place was to oppose the worship of Allah. So now that example is being used to indicate the same for slaughtering. If there is a place that the mushrikeen have specified to do their slaughtering of their animals, then it is not suitable for you to go and use that place as well. But there is an issue. And that issue is that Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu, one of the great companions, the second leader in charge after the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and then Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu, he, it is narrated on one occasion, prayed in a church. He prayed in a church. So, how did that occur? And why? And is that allowed? Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu, he went and prayed in a church. The scholars, some of them have said, that the reason why that occurred and it was okay, Obviously you have to make sure that there are no pictures and there are no uh, uh, outward open portrayal of idols etc. But generally speaking, Umar ibn Khattab anhu went and prayed in a church. Because his worship that he was going to do there was not going to be the same as the worship as the Christians. The Christians they worship in the church singing hymns for example, singing hymns and doing that type of thing. Umar ibn al-Khattab, when he went to the church, his prayer was going to be nothing to do with hymns. Nothing to do with the way that the Christian religion they worship. His prayer was going to be the Islamic Muslim prayer. So it was going to be completely different to what the people of that church do. There was a blatant difference between his worship and what was occurring from the Christians in that church. Whereas in this masjid of the munafiqeen, what were the munafiqeen pretending to do in that mosque? Exactly the same prayer. They were pretending to pray, the Prophet was going to go and do that exact same prayer. Exact same act of worship. Slaughtering in a place where the disbelievers slaughter, you're doing the exact same act of worship. So some of the scholars say maybe that's the reason that the same worship that the mushrikeen are doing, you don't go and do it in that same place. But if it was something completely different, then maybe there are examples that indicate exceptions for that. So Umar ibn Khattab was going to do something completely different. The Islamic Muslim prayer. The prayer that Allah has commanded upon us. He wasn't going to do the type of worship that the Christians do in the church, hymn singing, etc. So that is one example or that is one explanation the scholars have given regarding that. Then after that, we have the next hadith. عن ثابت ابن الضحاك رضي الله عنه قال نظر رجل أن ينحر إبلا ببوانه فسأل النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال هل كان فيها وثن من أوثان الجاهلية يعبد؟ قالوا لا أو قال لا قال فهل كان فيها عيد من أعيادهم؟ 
قالوا لا فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أوفي بنظرك فإنه لا وفاء لنظر في معصية الله ولا فيما لا يملك ابن آدم In this hadith in this incident what happened was that there was a man who made a vow like a, an oath he took an oath he took a vow that he was going to slaughter a camel at a particular place called Bawana Bawana is the name of a particular location between Mecca and Medina. There's a place along the route between Mecca and Medina, which is known as Buwana. And this particular individual had made a vow, an oath, that he was going to slaughter a camel at that location of Buwana. So he came to ask the Prophet ﷺ if this vow that he has taken is okay or not. Is it allowed? to go and slaughter at that place, Bawana. So the Prophet ﷺ asked him for some details. He asked him, is that a place, this Bawana, this particular place known as Bawana, is that a place where the mushrikeen used to have an idol that they worshipped? Is that a place where the mushrikeen used to worship any of their idols there. So they said to the Prophet ﷺ, No, it is not a place where the mushrikeen used to worship their idols there. Then the Prophet ﷺ said, Is it a place where the mushrikeen used to have any festivals there? Did the non-Muslims used to have some festivals in that place? Again they said to the Prophet ﷺ, No, then the Prophet ﷺ said to them, In that case, fulfill the vow that you have made, fulfill the vow that you have made, and go and slaughter your camel in that particular location. Because there is no fulfillment of any vow if it is in the sinning of Allah. You cannot fulfill a vow if you are going to sin against Allah. But this man now, he was not going to sin. That place, Buwana, it was not known for the mushrikeen. It was not known for their slaughtering, for their worship, for their idols. It was clean. So it was permissible for him to go and fulfill that vow. But if a person makes a vow, which is going to end up sinning against Allah, they're going to do a sin or an error against Allah, then it is not permissible to fulfill that vow. So again, this hadith indicates that slaughtering is an act of worship and the Prophet ﷺ wanted to make sure that this particular place where he had made a vow to slaughter at was a place that was free of any type of shirk or disobedience, free of any type of idols or worshipping of other deities besides Allah. And when that became known to the Prophet ﷺ, that's when he then said to them, it's permissible, you can go. Meaning, if that place had been known for having idols there, or it had been known that the mushrikeen do their festivals there, then it would not have been permissible for this man to fulfill his vow and to go and slaughter at that location. So here we understand that the actual location is important and you have to look at the location not to go and perform the worship at a place where the mushrikeen 
they are performing their worship. And this, in regards to Islam, it is of importance. Because every act of worship, every act of worship that a Muslim does, that it must be based upon, it must be done sincerely for the sake of Allah alone. And that is the essence, that is the basis of Islam. And that is what we are studying here, that the Muslim worships only Allah alone. There is no splitting your worship between Allah and any other deities, any other gods. Here, even the place where you do your worship has to be a place that is a place of Tawheed, meaning that Tawheed is performed in that place, and it is not a place where Shirk is performed. It is not a place where other gods besides Allah are worshipped. And that is the foundational, the basic principle of Islam. And that's what we're studying throughout this book. All of these examples are examples showing you that all of your worship has to be sincerely directed to Allah alone. And that it cannot be redirected to anyone besides Allah. Every prophet and messenger, as we already studied, every prophet and messenger was sent to teach the people this message of Tawheed, i.e. this message of worshipping Allah alone. The one true God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the one true deity worthy of worship. And that it is not permissible to split your worship between Allah or anyone else and anyone else. So all of the prophets and the messengers from Nuh alayhi salam, Ibrahim alayhi salam, Musa alayhi salam, uh, Isa alayhi salam, the prophets and the messengers as they term them, Abraham and Noah and Moses and Jesus, all of these prophets and messengers, they were Muslims and they came with the message of Tawheed. They all taught their people to worship Allah alone. They all taught their people the message of singling out your worship to the one true deity who deserves that worship. Every single prophet and messenger came with that. That was the revelation given to them all. The revelation, the previous books, the Torah, the Torah that was given to Musa, Musa alayhi salam, and now in this particular month especially, then we have the day of Ashura, which is linked to Musa alayhi salam, to Moses and Pharaoh. Because that story of when Fir'aun, when the Pharaoh, he was chasing after Musa alayhi salam, chasing after Musa and the people, the Muslims who were with Musa alayhi salam, and then they came to the ocean and the ocean split, and Musa alayhi salam crossed over, and when Pharaoh came, Pharaoh tried to go in and chase him, then the ocean collapsed upon him, and he was drowned, and Musa alayhi salam and his people were saved. That was in this month, on the day of Ashura. And that's why when the Prophet sallallahu he noticed that the Jews would fast on this day, would fast on this day. And when he asked them why, they said, because this is the day that Allah saved Moses from Pharaoh. This is the day that Allah saved Musa alayhi salam from Fir'aun. So we fast on this day. So the Prophet said, the Muslims have more right to Musa alayhi salam. So the Prophet commanded us 
that we should also fast on this day. So it is a sunnah, something recommended that you fast on the uh, day of Ashura. So all of those prophets and messengers, whether it was Musa alayhi salam, whether it was uh, Ibrahim alayhi salam, Isa alayhi salam, all of these messengers, they came with the religion of Islam, they came with the religion of Tawheed. As for the differences now that you find in the Injil, the Bible, or the Torah, the Torah, the Old Testament, the New Testament, these books originally, the Torah and the Injil, they were books from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, revelation from Allah, and we believe that they were the speech of Allah, but then they became distorted over time. They became distorted and they changed over time. So now the Injil that was given to Isa alayhi salam, the Bible that was given to Jesus, it's no longer the original one that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave as revelation. The Torah, the Torah that was given to Musa, Moses, then that is not the original one that Allah initially gave, the original revelation. As for the original ones, they were revelation from Allah. And they had the message of Tawheed in them, to teach the people to worship Allah alone. Not upon any other basis. Not upon the basis of saying that there are multiple deities, or that Allah has a son, or that Allah has a wife, or anything of that nature. That is not permissible. The message and the revelation was always to worship Allah alone, and not to associate any partners. And that is the basis of what we are studying here in this book. And that is what you should understand. Kitabut Tawheed, it is a book that clarifies to you that your purpose of existence is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And to only worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To single out every act of your obedience to Allah alone. And that's why you have all of these various chapters explaining that Allah created us. And He didn't leave us without purpose. We were not left here without purpose. لَمْ يَتْرُكْنَا hamala, As it is mentioned in the three fundamental principles, Allah did not leave us here without purpose. Allah created us, He placed us upon this earth, and then He gave us an objective, a purpose to our existence. We weren't just left without any purpose to our existence, a useless existence. We were given purpose, objective, reason. And that reason, that objective, as Allah told us in the Qur'an, is that we use our lives to worship Him. And that's why all of these other blessings that Allah has created for us, the blessings of the food and the water and the clothes and the air that you breathe, the, the homes, the roofs over your heads, all of these other blessings Allah has provided for you, then they are there for you so that you may use these blessings in order to worship Allah. You eat and drink, you have that blessing. That is a blessing from Allah. So now after you have been given this blessing, worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and thank Allah for that blessing that you have been given. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us that the greatest sin that you can commit the greatest error that you can fall into is that you associate partners to Allah. You worship others alongside Allah. And that's what the disbelievers at the time of the Prophet ﷺ used to do. They would slaughter 
for Allah, but they would also slaughter for their other deities. They would make vows to their other deities. They would do certain acts of worship to other gods that they believed in. They would do certain acts of worship for their other gods, even though they loved Allah, but they also loved their other gods. And that we already mentioned. وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يَتَّخِذُ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ أَنْدَادًا يُحِبُّونَهُمْ كَحُبِّ اللَّهِ They used to have these other gods and they used to love them just as they love Allah. But we have been taught in this religion that we are to single out, to make unique our worship, our dependence, our trust, our love, our fear, our hope. It is all in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, our Creator. And there is no doubt of that. It's like the example they give. If you're walking in the middle of the desert, you're walking in the middle of the desert, nobody there for miles and miles, you're by yourself, you're lost in the middle of the desert. Then all of a sudden as you're walking along, you see in front of you some droppings, like some camel droppings. Even though the footsteps might not be there, the wind is blowing the sand around, the footsteps have disappeared. The wind has covered the footsteps up, so there's no footsteps. But the droppings of the camel, this pile is still there. When you see that, what are you going to know? You're going to know what? That there's been a camel there. That's obvious. If you're walking in the middle of the desert, there's nothing anywhere. But you see some camel droppings, then you're going to know that maybe a few hours ago or a day ago or two days ago, there must have been a camel, some people and a camel, or maybe some wild camels by themselves, went past this particular place. Must have been. Otherwise, how did camel droppings get there? Must have been a camel that went by. That is the same example now, the scholars, they say to you, when you look around this earth now, you see the mountains the way they are. The rivers the way they flow, the waterfalls how you see them in their beauty, the sun and the moon and the stars, the wind as it blows, the oxygen that you breathe, all of these things, are they there just by themselves? If you're going to say yes, they just appeared by themselves, they just exist by themselves, they just came, then you're just like that type of person who comes across the droppings in the desert and says there's no way there was a camel here, those droppings must have just appeared. They must have just appeared out of thin air and just dropped there in the middle of the desert. Would anybody accept that? They would say you are. They would say you're deluded. You're being foolish. What are you talking about? The droppings just appeared out of thin air and dropped here in the middle of the desert. There must have been a camel who went by. So the same here now, when you see all of these things in creation, it is not correct to say that they just appeared, mountains just dropped into place. Valleys just dropped into place, rivers just dropped into place. Rather, all of this indicates that there is a creator. All of this indicates that there is a creator. A creator who created all of this. Allah, who created all of these things. There's another example that the scholars, they mention of Imam Abu Hanifa. Rahimahullah. That on one occasion, some atheists wanted to debate him. Some atheists wanted to debate him about whether Allah exists or not. So he agreed an appointment with them, to meet them at a particular time. He was late for the appointment. So when he arrived late, they said to him, why are you late? We had arranged a particular time, you're late. 
He said, well, I was out in the ocean actually. I was out at sea. And I was having some difficulty or there was like a shipwreck or something of that nature. But then, as I was struggling to swim back to shore, and it was taking me a while, etc. Difficulty, there was no ship, we lost it, whatever. I was trying to swim back and it was taking time. But then, uh, there was a strong wind, a bit of a storm. And nearby at the shore, at the seaside, the beach, the trees, some of their branches fell off with the strong winds. The strong winds blew off some of the branches. And these branches, they fell into the sea. But coincidentally, when they fell into the sea, these branches from these lots of trees, they banged into each other and they made the shape of a boat. They fell in from the branches of the trees. They fell into the sea and the wind and the storm blew them around and they banged into each other and they ended up making the shape of a boat. And so he says, I got onto that and I paddled back and I got here now just a bit late because of that reason. They said, you're making a fool of us. What kind of a ridiculous story is that? They said to him, you're trying to tell us the branches fell off in the winds of the tree. Okay, that's okay. But then you want us to believe that these branches coincidentally banged into each other and they stuck together in the shape of a boat and you were able to get onto that boat and get back to the shore. They said, you want us to believe that? They said, that's ridiculous. How could branches coincidentally bang into each other in just the right way, in just the right places, to make it a waterproof boat that you could swim back in, that you could paddle back in? They said, that's ridiculous, don't make a fool. He said to them in that case, if you cannot believe that a few branches from a few trees could bang into each other by themselves, by accident, coincidentally, and end up making the shape of a boat. If you can't believe that, and it's not something huge, a few branches coming together, roughly make the shape of a boat. If you can't believe that could happen, he said to them, how do you believe that these mountains just appeared by themselves then? Or that the sun and the moon and the stars and the rivers and everything just coincidentally came together just at the right place? The oceans came together in their places, the dry land came together in its place, the mountains came together in the places, the rivers and the valleys came together all in nice neat areas, places where people can... All of this just happened to come together just coincidentally, perfectly. This earth all just came together by itself randomly. He refuted them. Obviously they could not say yes. How can they say yes, they believe the whole of this earth randomly just came together just right. The rivers in the good places, the sea in its place, the dry land in its place, the mountains in their places, everything came together just right everywhere. They wouldn't say yes to that, because if they say yes to that, he'll say to them, then why can't you believe me that a few branches came together into the shape of a boat? If you can believe this whole earth came together by itself, then how can you believe that a few branches can come together by themselves? So this shows that in reality, the earth did not come together by itself. Just like you know that a few branches, if they fall about in the wind in a storm, no matter how long they keep banging about, they're not going to make a shape of a boat that doesn't sink. They might come together and bang together into each other, but they're bound to have holes in them. They're not going to make a boat by themselves. So if that can't occur without a creator, a person who comes along and stitches them together properly, then the same with the earth. It doesn't come together by itself. Rather, it came together with a creator. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is the purpose of us studying this book. The purpose of our studying of this book is for us to realize that our existence here is for the worship of our Creator. That is why Allah put us on this earth to test us. Who will be the best in their worship to Allah? الَّذِي خَلَقَ الْمَوْتَ وَالْحَيَاةَ لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ أَيُّكُمْ أَحْسَنُ عَمَلًا Allah the one who created death and life to test you. Which of you is the best in actions? Which of you will be obedient to Allah? And that is the person who finds the peace in his heart. The one who wishes to find the peace, the tranquility, the serenity, the ease in his heart, the relaxation in his heart, is the person who accepts this worship of Allah. Meaning that a person takes on board that he must be here for the purpose of obeying his Creator. As for a person who lives this life without any purpose, without any objective, then all he can see in the distance is being buried and becoming soil into the earth. That's all he lives to see in the end. That is all he can see in the future. That eventually all that's going to happen is he will die and rot away into the soil. And that's his long life objective at the end. That is the end result. And that can't be just the end result. It cannot be. Because if it was the case that there is no purpose to this existence, then everybody who does wrong things, people who murder other people, they steal from other people, they kill other people, they do all types of these illegal things, haram things. And many people get away with it. Some people are never caught. Murderers who are never caught. Then eventually those people die. So is that it now? Those murderers and those evil people who did all these evil things on this earth and they never got caught and then they died, is that it? They got away with it then. How can that be the case? How can it be that the oppressors and the wrongdoers can do whatever they want and they will not be held accountable for it? And how can it be that the righteous and the good people spend their lives in righteousness and obedience to Allah but it counts for nothing? Rather, this is the test that a person, he obeys Allah upon Tawheed, he makes all of his trust and his dependence into Allah, not that he relies upon other people, or he depends on other people, or he puts his love, his trust into other people, not that he wears the amulets and the charms, and the good luck and the bad luck, not that he uh, slaughters for the other than the sake of Allah, vows to others besides Allah, as people they do. For example, they can't have children, they are told to go to some religious person, he will wipe over you, trust him, give him money and you'll get a kid. That type of belief is an incorrect belief. When they go to the grave of the Prophet ﷺ and they trust in the Prophet ﷺ, they think the Prophet Muhammad is going to answer their dua for them ﷺ. When in reality Allah tells us, make all of your dua, all of your supplication, all of your remembrance to Allah, anything you need to ask for, then you ask for, from Allah, whenever you need aid and assistance, then you seek and look for that aid and assistance in Allah. There is no other man, no other person who is able to give you that. Everything, it is in the control of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why we've mentioned before, all of the universe is in the control of Allah. Everything that occurs, it occurs by the knowledge of Allah. Allah is aware of everything which occurs. All of the decree written down 50,000 years, 
before the actual creation was even created, even before the heavens and the earth were created, Allah wrote down in the preserved tablet, the pen that Allah created, wrote down in the tablet, everything which is going to occur up until the day of judgment. So everything is known to Allah. And Allah will then judge those people on the day of judgment based upon your actions. And so when we look at the core issue, the core thing that you need to focus on is this tawheed. Because on the day of judgment, what will save a person is this aqeedah, this tawheed, that he was a person who made all of his life purely for the sake of Allah. That his worship was only purely for the sake of Allah. Not with any partners, not saying that there are many gods or there are multiple gods. There is one deity to be worshipped and all of your worship is for that one deity. That is why Allah said in the Quran, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ insa إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ Which was the first ayah that we did. That Allah told us, I did not create the jinn or the humans except for them to worship me. That is the reason why Allah placed us upon this earth. That is the objective and the reasoning that we were given in our existence upon this earth. That is where we'll briefly conclude that lesson today. Uh, that is the end of the chapter regarding slaughtering in a place where uh, slaughtering for other than the sake of Allah occurs. And next week, inshallah, we'll be discussing regarding uh, vowing for other than the sake of Allah. When people say, I swear, when you hear somebody saying, he swears on his mother's life, or you hear somebody saying, he swears on his children's lives, are these types of things what you should be saying as a Muslim? The reality is they are not. You shouldn't be taking these types of oaths, saying you swear on your mother's life, you swear on your father's life, you swear on your children's life. These types of statements are not correct. You should only be taking an oath by Allah. You should say you take an oath by Allah about such and such. Not an oath by your mother or your father or your children. So we'll discuss that in more detail next week and explain the reason behind that. So inshallah ta'ala, that's where we'll conclude today. If there are questions we're able to take, we'll take them. Otherwise, we'll conclude upon that point. How many days is supposed to fast Ashura? Ashura, then the days, the 10th day of Muharram, that is the day of Ashura. So that is the day that you are supposed to fast. But also the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that if he lived for another year, he would add the 9th with it. So the best thing to do is to fast the ninth day and the tenth day. To fast the ninth and the tenth, which is going to be Sunday and Monday. Sunday will be the ninth, next Sunday, and Monday will be the tenth. So next Sunday and Monday are the two days that you should fast. Ten and the eleventh, some of the scholars, they mention it. Ibn al-Qayyim, he mentioned it in his books, but... The narrations that talk about the 11th day, they are not as strong as the 9th day. The 9th day is the strong narration. So 9 and 10 is what you should do. Because the Hadith said that the Christians did the one day, or the Jews, but we'll do one extra. Yeah, so the Jews used to fast one day. But the Prophet said, we'll oppose that and we'll do additional 9th day as well as the 10th day. That's why he said, if I live till next year, I will fast the 9th day as well. So fast on the Sunday and the Monday. The other two days of Ashura. And it mentions if you fast on that day, 
then the sins of your previous year are forgiven. I've got a question for you. Hmm. You mentioned about uh, you know, sunrising, that you're not supposed to um, pray when sunrising. Suppose you're sleeping and you get up into that sunrise. Yeah, you? So you're supposed to pray the morning prayer before sunrise. But let's say you wake up late. If you genuinely put your alarm on and everything, but on the other occasion it might happen that you end up waking up late. So as soon as you wake up, even if it is at the time of sunrise, you pray then. As soon as you wake up, you pray your prayer because that is an outside incident. You've on the odd occasion overslept. So just pray as soon as you wake up then. Is that even while it's rising as well? As soon as you wake up, pray. So some of the scholars, they say that if there is a prayer with a specific reason, like for example, Tahiyatul Masjid, when you enter the masjid, you pray two raka'at. That is permissible even at the time of sunset or uh, before the time of sunset, asr after asr time. You can still pray those prayers because they are of specific reasonings. And some scholars say, no, just don't pray generally at all. If uh, some masjid around you, local masjid, you pray when the sun comes out yeah. you pray with them when the sun comes out yeah. no I don't think the masjids they pray that late but some masajid they pray just before sunrise and that's not uh, what the sunnah is the sunnah is that you should pray early at the early time of fajr some masajid some of the people they have a misunderstanding regarding some of the narrations and they think you're supposed to pray the fajr prayer just before sunrise and that isn't correct so really you should try to find a masjid that prays earlier Praise at the early time, not so late, just before sunrise. So we'll leave it there, and inshallah we'll carry on next week.